Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Tanya Bayard about Murder in the Cloister and the three preceding novels in her Christine de Pizan historical mystery series. It's a safe bet to say that 14th century France, and specifically the reign of Charles VI, the Mad, is not on the short list of times and places considered guaranteed sales by the publishing industry. Yet it was a fascinating period in history, with the Renaissance unfurling its first leaves, a time filled with superstition and such everyday ills as poverty, filth, and disease, yet with a few brave souls ready to embrace a more scientific way of looking at the world around them. One such character was Christine de Pizan, a real-life poet and author of Italian descent who lived from 1364 to 1430 and whom Bayard has adopted as her heroine. At the beginning of this fourth adventure, however, the semi-fictional Christine is nowhere in sight. The Royal Priory of Saint-Louis at Poissy, late March 1399. The young nun was nearly alone in the dark dormitory. One other sister, who'd been ill, lay snoring at the far end of the cavernous room, but the sound was so far away it hardly reached her. Everyone else, shaken out of sleep by Sister Claude, had gone to the church to chant matins and lauds. She'd been excused because she'd just returned from a journey, and the prioress, seeing how tired she was, had given her permission to stay in bed. She'd intended to tell the prioress something, but she'd fallen asleep before she could say it. It would have to wait until morning. Lumps in the flocking of her mattress dug into her back, and the unfinished wool of her blanket scratched her face. But in spite of the discomfort, she fell into a deep, dreamless sleep. Then, all of a sudden, she was awake. She lay in the darkness, breathing air so cold it stung her nostrils, and tried to think what had disturbed her. She reached for an embroidered tapestry that was used as a bed cover during the day and curled up under it, pressing her hands against her stomach. The bed shook as her body was racked by sobs. After a while, the weeping subsided, and she lay quietly in darkness so complete it seemed to weigh on her, pressing her down into the hard mattress, drawing her into an abyss. She felt as though she were enclosed in a coffin, wanting to scream but unable to make a sound. Then she saw a light. It floated through the gloom, emitting a faint crackling sound. She sat up and stared through the darkness as it came close, then moved away. She rose and followed it out of the dormitory into a passageway beside the church. 
She could hear the other sisters chanting in the choir, and she thought she should join them. But the light beckoned, drawing her away, out into the cloister, across a lawn wet with rain, and under the branches of a huge pine tree whose water-laden branches grazed her cheeks. The light stopped. She saw a small dog. She reached out for it, but an unseen hand pulled it away. Then there were two figures, and the dog was circling them. She reached for the dog again and caught its collar. The collar broke. She felt a sharp pain in her chest. She cried out and fell to the ground. And now, please join me in welcoming Tanya Byard. Hi, Tanya. I look forward to talking with you today. Well, I'm looking forward to speaking with you. It's great that, to be on your podcast. Start, please, by telling us a bit about your background before you began writing fiction. Uh, for example, you pu- published a nonfiction book titled Sweet Herbs and Sundry Flowers, Medieval Gardens and the Gardens of the Cloisters. What, is, what inspired that book? Well, I started out as an art historian. I was specializing in Gothic sculpture uh, because I loved everything that was medieval. And after a while, after teaching for a while, I decided to want to, I wanted to do something else. So I did a little bit of uh, public relations work for the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And while I was there, they said, why don't you take charge of our biblical garden, which was a small garden in which they grew plants that were mentioned in the Bible. And I thought that was so much fun. I thought, well, maybe I'll become a horticulturist. So I thought maybe I'd go to school and learn about horticulture, but then just by chance, I fell into this wonderful job as the assistant horticulturist at the Cloisters, which is a museum of medieval art in New York City. It's connected with the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it was just a perfect job for me because as an art historian specializing in medieval art, there I was in a medieval museum with gardens and the plants that are grown in or were grown in the Middle Ages in the gardens. So while I was there, we did a lot of research on the plants that were grown in the Middle Ages, and uh, they asked me to write this book, Sweet Herbs and Sundry Flowers, which was published by the museum as a guide to the plants in the cloisters. So that's how I did that. You also translated parts of a household management book um, that, as it happens, I read as part of my dissertation research. Um, we'll talk later about the role of Le Ménagier de Paris in uh, your novels, but what would you like listeners to know about the actual text? Well, while I was at the uh, cloisters and working in the gardens there, there was there were a lot of books that we um, looked at and treatises and all, always trying to make sure that we had the right species of plants to go in the gardens. And one of the books that we used was uh, a treatise written by in the 14th century by an elderly French gentleman for his young bride. He'd married a girl who was only 15 years old. And he wrote a treatise telling her what she should know as she entered into the married state. And one of the things he talked about was how to manage his gardens. And that was a section, of course, that interested us at the cloisters because there was so much information about plants that were grown in the Middle Ages. But I found the whole treatise fascinating. Uh, We don't know the name of the man who who wrote this treatise, but uh, he has all kinds of information for his young 
wife because he was so much older than she was and he felt that she would probably marry again and he wanted to make sure that she brought honor to him with his with her new husband whoever he would be so he wrote about how to conduct herself in public and how to fulfill her religious duties and how to have good morals and how to care for her husband and how to managing manage his household so this book had already been translated in 1928 into a rather formal English, and I thought it would be fun to do a new translation, leaving out many of the parts that wouldn't be so interested, interesting for modern readers, like religious observance and moralizing tales and things like that. So I did this translation, which I called uh, A Medieval Home Companion. And how did you go from there to writing fiction? Well, I'd always kind of wanted to write fiction, and I love mysteries. And I, a friend of mine who was in the publishing business, she kind of laughed at me, and she said, you know, just because you like mysteries doesn't mean you can write one. And I took that as a kind of challenge, and I decided to try, and that's how I got into it. So given that you decided to write a historical mystery series, why center it on a person who actually lived? Uh, Are there particular advantages or disadvantages to constructing fiction, especially mysteries, around a relatively well-studied historical figure rather than a character who's entirely your creation? Well, I began to be interested in Christine de Pizan many years ago when I saw an exhibition uh, by Judy Chicago at the Brooklyn Museum called The Dinner Party in which there are 39 place settings for 39 mythical and historical famous women. And I was intrigued to find that one of the guests was Christine de Pizan, who lived around uh, 1364 to 1430. And I didn't know much about her, but then I decided to uh, learn more, and I became more and more intrigued. And here was this 14th century woman who really challenged the men of her day who considered women inferior and incapable of achieving the great feats that men had achieved throughout the ages. And she'd written this book called The City of Ladies, in which she tells stories of so many famous women throughout the ages who made important contributions to society. And before she wrote that book, she'd also engaged in this um, heated controversy with some of the most intellectual men of her day, the king's secretaries, uh, quarreling with them over the popular poem, The Romance of the Rose. She found in The Romance of the Rose a lot of things that were slanderous to women, and she didn't hesitate to antagonize these men by pointing all this out. And I just thought she was such a fascinating woman, and also considering all the... uh, feminist uh, thought that goes on today, she seemed to fit right in. And in in addition to that, she lived in such a fascinating time in French history. The king was mad, and sorcerers and charlatans roamed around the palace claiming they had miraculous cures, and the queen, Isabel of Bavaria, was a foreigner, and there were lots of rumors and slanderous talks about her around the court. Uh, It was just so much going on, and Christine was a commoner, but she had access to this turbulent court because her father, being the king's physician, an alchemist, and her husband had been one of the royal secretaries. So she knew everyone there. So I figured, why do I need to make up a heroine? No fictional character that I could make up would be half as interesting. 
Yes, I mean, she really is a wonderful heroine. And you're right. I mean, if you were to make up someone like that, people would say she wasn't possible. You know, I mean, people always think that medieval women are all these little doormats, you know, running around. That's right. And some people... Some people find it hard to believe that Christine de Pizan actually did exist in this way. Uh, it is hard to imagine a woman who stood up to men the way she did in her time. It's really a wonderful story. It is. Where is Christine at this point in her life, between uh, 1393 and 1399, uh, when she is in her late 20s and early 30s? She, um, in the first novel, takes place, it takes place in 1393. And she's about 28 years old then, and she's recently lost her husband. So she's just getting back on her feet after a long illness, and she needs to support her family. And she knows how to read and write, which is not the usual thing for a medieval woman. Our father had taught her over her mother's objections, and she becomes a scribe. And in the novel, the first novel, In the Presence of Evil, she's working for the queen, copying a manuscript that the queen wants to give as a wedding present to one of her ladies-in-waiting. And in order to do this copying, Christine has to go to the palace, and this gives her an opportunity to observe all the exciting things that are going there. Uh, So this makes her the ideal heroine for a series of novels set during the time when the French king had gone mad and the French court was in disarray. She can witness everything firsthand, something not many commoners could do. And all the four novels, the four novels that I've written so far are set in this time between 1393 and 1399, when she's mostly concerned with supporting her family with her work as a scribe and hasn't yet really established herself as a writer, though she's begun writing poems. Yes, she's surrounded by her family, which is something I particularly like. You know, she's not a loner, um, especially her mother, Francesca. But also she has three children, and there's a niece who's living with her, Elisabetta. So describe her relationships with them, please. She has a lot of conflicts with her mother. Um, You have to understand that Christine really did write a lot about herself in her writing. So that's how we know a lot about her. But we don't. there's other things we don't know. We don't know the name of her mother, for example. So I gave her a name. I call her Francesca. But she says in her writings that while her father wanted her to learn to read and write, her mother objected. Francesca thought that women should tend to their spinning and sewing and girlish things. So Christine's always at odds with her over that. And she's also at odds with her mother over all her mother's superstitions. Her mother's very superstitious. She's always telling her, you know, don't go out today because I saw a blind man in the street or a snowstorm. Or uh, She believes in the evil eye, and she talks about omens and portents, and she believes, like most people did, at that time, that the king's madness is caused by sorcery. And she's always trying to stop Christine from going to the palace because she's there's evil there. And she Francesca even gets an old crone friend of hers to write prayers, prayers in the blood of a white dove on a piece of parchment, thinking that these prayers will protect Christine from all the evils at the palace. Christine thinks it's all nonsense, and she's always telling her mother so. And another bone of contention between Christine and her mother is Christine's friend Marion, who's a prostitute. 
Marion was raped when she was 18, or she was younger. She's 18 now. And since girls who've been raped didn't have much of a chance of finding a husband, she became a prostitute to earn her living. And her mother worked for Francesca, but Francesca fired her when she found out that her daughter was a prostitute because she didn't want her friends to know that she had the mother of a prostitute working in her house. And she certainly doesn't want her daughter consorting with prostitutes. Um, As far as her children go, Christine had three children, a daughter and two sons. And she talks about the first two in her her own writings, uh, Marie, who probably was around 12 at the time of the first novel, at least I made her that age. Marie is very prim and proper, and actually Christine's daughter, her real daughter, did become a nun, so uh, she kind of fits with that. Her older son, John, who I think must have been about nine at this time, is very practical and sensible, and in actual life, her son John did become a royal secretary like his father. Now, Christine had another son, and she doesn't say much about him in her writing. She only said that she lost a son around 1400. She doesn't give his name, so I call him Thomas, and I make him around eight. And he's a very important character in all the novels, because he's very mischievous and he's bound to get into trouble. As far as the niece, we don't know much about her, except that Christine's brother had gone to Italy and he left his daughter with her. And so I think that Lisabetta's probably about five in 1393, but we don't know much else about her. Well, I'm sorry to hear that Thomas doesn't have long because he's one of my <laughs> favorite characters. He's such a sweetheart. <laughs> you know, well, it's it's a problem because I, as I go on with the novels, and I do intend to bring them up to the end of Christine's life, I have to do away with Thomas at some point because he isn't around after 1400s. I don't want to kill him off. So I'm trying to think of some other way that he disappears. But her real son did, uh, she says in her writings, that she lost him around 1400. So we have to figure out what to do with him. One of the um, sources of conflict between uh, Christine and her mother, as you indicated, is that uh, Christine works as a scribe, but she has no choice uh, because she has all these people to support. How did she become the sole support of her family? Well, she was Christine was the daughter of a famous astrologer and physician, Thomas de Pizan, who went to the um, earlier to the French court to serve an advisor to King Charles V. And in 1368, when she was around four years old, Christine was brought to France, and she lived there for the rest of her life. In 1380, when she was 15, she married one of the royal secretaries, Etienne de Castel. It was an arranged marriage, but marriage, but a very happy one. And she did live happily with her husband and mother, too, as a wife and mother for 10 years. But in 1390, her husband suddenly died while he was on a mission with the king. And since her father had died several years earlier, she was the only one left to support her mother, her three children, and her niece. And that's how she became a scribe. She has friends from all walks of life. Um, we've talked a little bit about Mary, and Brother Michel is another of my favorites. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Michel is an actual person. His name was Michel de Pantois, and he was uh, a monk from the Abbey of Saint-Denis who wrote 
chronicle of the life of King Charles V. He had to be around. He wasn't just staying at the Abbey all the time. He was around uh, the court. And um, and this he says in his chronicles. So that's how it's possible that Christine could have known him. And certainly her father must have known him because he was at the court. In the novels, he often comes to Christine's house, and he and Francesca are very fond of each other because he loves her cooking. And he also likes to hear about her superstitions. He himself wasn't superstitious, but he believed in signs, messages from God about what is going to happen. And in this chronicle, we find many passages where he talks about signs and thunderstorms and floods and things that foreshadow important events. Michelle is very helpful to Christine in the novels because he knows everyone at the court and he's even able to get her an audience with the king. And uh, he's very uh, scandalized that Christine is friends with Marion, the prostitute, and at first he's very rude to Marion, but Marion and Michelle eventually come to have a grudging respect for each other and uh, they develop a relationship in which they try to outdo each other with taunts and insults. A rather shady character is uh, Henri de Picard, uh, who, in addition to expressing the outrageous sexism of medieval society, and he's so outrageous in some ways that he's kind of a guilty pleasure to like, um, he's a self-identified alchemist and a very wealthy man. So share your impressions of him as a character and his relationship with Christine. He's such an interesting character, and I'm not sure I completely understand him myself. He's always around when Christine is involved in a crime, and he always taunts her and says she's incapable of solving the problem. He's a perfect foil for her, and underneath it all, I think she really enjoys sparring with him. Henri was a friend of her father's, and one of the things Christine has against him is the fact that he got her father interested in alchemy. And actually, the real Thomas de Pizan did lose a lot of money in this vain pursuit of making gold out of base metals. And it's also known that Thomas de Pizan made little tin or lead figures that were supposed to represent the King of England and his soldiers. And he went around burying these figures in the earth, which was supposed to make the English leave France. And in the first novel, Henri, I have Henri helping Christine do this. Nobody seems to know where Henri gets his money, but Christine always suspects that it's because he's actually discovered how to make gold. And Francesca doesn't like Henri, Henri at all, and she won't even let him in the house. But um, Michel knows a lot about Henri and his background, and he tells Christine that... um, Henri was brought up in a monastery, which is maybe why he doesn't know how to deal with women. And he learned to be a scribe, and he went to the library, and he learned about alchemy and astrology and magic. And he's also a poet. Uh, So he's he's mysterious and secretive, and he looks evil. He's very small. He has a little black beard, and he wears a hooded black cape with an ermine collar and uh, He's always telling, Michelle is always telling Christine that she didn't, shouldn't always suspect Henri of being the murderer because whenever she's searching for a murderer and Henri is following her around telling her that she wouldn't be able to solve the mystery, she always thinks it's Henri himself who did it. But of course it never is. And in the first book, Henri actually saves her life. 
But he is the kind of character that if he were following us around, we would also think he was <laughs> just out of spite almost because <laughs> he is very annoying. <laughs> yes, he is. But they have this funny relationship. And, uh, you know, in one of the novels, uh, actually, it turns out that Henri really had wanted to marry Christine when she was, because he's older, much older than she is. And he's a friend of her father's. And, uh, or he was a friend of her father's. And uh, actually, he's really kind of after Christine, but in this funny kind of way, because he doesn't know how to deal with women at all. The three previous books in the series are In the Presence of Evil, In the Shadow of the Enemy, and In the Company of Fools. Uh, I think we don't have enough time to go into the setup for those, although I hope people will read them and read them in order to get a sense of the characters. But I was delighted to see um, the uh, the man who wrote that treatise uh, in a fictional form. Uh, he shows up in book two, and he's also in book three, in the person of Martin Dubois. Um, so... Uh, Tell us about him and his young wife and how you came to imagine them. He was uh, known as the householder of Paris, or the Ménager. He was made famous by a historian, Eileen Power, on nearly 100 years ago when she translated his treatise. And she called it The Goodman of Paris. And, of course, that was a book that we used as a cloister so much because of the section on gardening. And when you read about him, you know, he he's always telling his wife, you know, she should have good morals and she should conduct herself properly in society. And he tells her about all the religious observances and things that she should be concerned with. And he's concerned about his own bodily comfort and his food. And she, he gives his wife a lot of recipes to cook for him. Um, so we don't know anything else about him, but you naturally assume he's this fussy old gentleman and his wife was young and innocent and completely subservient, and I thought it would be fun to shatter that image. And I gave him a name, Martin Dubois, and I made him something entirely different from what we've always assumed him to be. Yes, but in a very credible way. I mean, he he's a really appealing character. Oh, I'm glad you think that, you know, because I came to admire him very much, or admire my <laughs> my. Martin Dubois, because, uh, you know, he's, yeah, he is something, someone uh, today we would find people might be that age and yet be very different from what they were thought to be when, when you didn't, when people didn't live that long or weren't that healthy to the old age. Right. I'm still secretly hoping he gets together with Francesca, but that's a matter for a future book. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. So that brings us to Murder in the Cloister. Um, We've been doing all set up now because with mystery stories, we don't want to give away all the plots or anything like that. So uh, what is the situation at the Priory during that opening scene that I read in the introduction? Okay. The story takes place in 1399 at the Royal Abbey of Saint-Louis at Poissy, which was fairly near Paris. And as the story opens, it's the middle of the night, around 2 in the morning, and a young nun is lying in bed when ordinarily she would be in the choir chanting the offices of Matins and Prime at that time of night. But she's not there because she just came back from a journey, and the prioress said that she could stay in bed because she's very tired. And as you see her in that opening 
scene. She's unhappy and disturbed, but we don't know about what. And she has a lot of trouble falling asleep. And she can hear the other sisters chanting in the choir, and she thinks she should be with them, but she's too tired. And then as she begins to fall asleep, she sees a mysterious light that causes her to go get up out of bed and follow the light out into the cloister, and there she's murdered. And that's the start of the mystery. And how does Christine get drawn into investigating this murder? The prioress at Poissy, Marie de Bourbon, was the king's aunt. And this is true, and this was an act, this is actually the case. And in the mystery, she discovers the body of the murdered nun, and she gets the infirmarist, Sister Genevieve, to help her carry the body to the infirmary. And they're the only ones who know about what happened, and they're very, very anxious to keep it a secret that the nun was murdered because that would re- reflect very badly on the cloister, the, uh, the, uh, the priory. And um, also, if the other sisters found out, they'd be hysterical and panicked. So... The two of them, the the prioress and the infirmarist, work very hard to uh, keep the other nuns from finding out, and they uh, they make up a story that she had a weak heart. And uh, the prioress knows that Christine has solved other crimes, so she writes to King Charles, who's her nephew, and asks him to send Christine to the priory, ostensibly to copy a valuable manuscript, but actually to find out who killed the nun. So the king and queen send Christine to the priory, and they, along with her, they send uh, Brother Michel and Henri Le Picard. And naturally, Christine's not very happy about that. And then Henri invites Christine's son, Thomas, to come along, too, which makes it even more difficult for Christine. And later, Marion, uh, who's still in Paris, finds out that Christine is in danger at Poissy, so she goes there on her own. And Marie, um, Christine's daughter, is also a nun at Poissy. In the story, yes, Marie is a nun at the Abbey, and that's the reason why uh, one of the reasons why Christine can go there and see her daughter, and uh, that kind of makes it more interesting for her to go, because she really doesn't want to go there, and she especially doesn't want to go with Henri, but she goes there, and that's the whole story. It starts there. The death of the young nun exposes various stresses and strains among the nuns, uh, especially the nuns in leadership roles at the convent. Uh, What can you reveal about that element without giving away spoilers? The prioress has a real problem because she has to keep the other sisters from finding out that the, the young nun was murdered. So, as I said, she and the infirmaries make up a story that the nun had a weak heart. But There's lots of hints that some of the nuns may suspect something. Um, But there are a lot of other stresses at the Priory, as there would be in a community of nuns. Marie de Bourbon was and is in the story a very remarkable woman. She's very efficient and kind and understanding. But she's also the king's aunt. And that is a problem because the the prioresses weren't appointed by the king. They elected the prioresses among themselves. But because she's the king's aunt, and she became prioress in the same year that her nephew, King Charles VI, 
became king, some of the nuns think that she had a family uh, they're suspicious that her family relationship may have had something to do with her becoming the prioress. And there's another nun, Sister Thomasine. She's a sub-prioress, and she really wants to be prioress herself, and so she's always doing everything she can to discredit uh, Marie, the, the Marie de Bourbon, the actual prioress. And she goes around trying to make the prioress look bad all the time and um, she has lots of ways that she uh, is always needling her about things and talking to the other sisters but one of the main problems with the Abbey at that time was that there was a sister Sister Adelie who thought that she heard voices and had visions and she's always making a lot of trouble because of that and uh, the nuns are uh, really disturbed by her and she thinks she can hear uh, a heart beating in the crypt and uh, she makes trouble in the choir when they're supposed to be singing. Um, So you can see there were lots of problems that the nuns had among themselves on top of the fact that, uh, you know, they'd had this murder and the prioress is trying to keep it quiet. And another problem that the prioress has is the fact that the nuns in this priory were completely in control of their own uh, properties, and they had lots of property. It was a royal property. It was very wealthy. And they had a lot of land outside the property that they were in charge of and a lot of income coming from it. And <laughs> men didn't really believe that women could conduct that kind of business, so they were always having arguments with, well, the bailiff in particular. They couldn't go outside the priory to manage these properties, so they had to hire men to do it, and those men really didn't believe that women could uh, carry on business like that. So that was another, there were other problems that that they had. Uh, It was not an easy job for the prioress. No, Uh, and one of the men who's convinced that they can't do it is Henri de Picard. (laughs) Yes, right, right. And, And he goes around talking to people in town and questioning, are they doing it right, and this and that and the other thing. And uh, then I found it fascinating that, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, I bring the name Humbert into it. And Humbert of Romance was the fifth master general of the Dominicans. He lived about a century earlier, but he wrote some influential rules for for the Dominicans. This was a Dominican priory. And uh, one of the things he wrote was that women don't have as much sense as men, and therefore men need sensible men to conduct their affairs. <laughs> and this, of course, makes Mother Marie, the prioress, very angry. And uh, Henri, of course, Henri Le Picard, of course, plays right into this because he's always taunting her and doubting her abilities. But she's very smart, and she'll let Henri go on with his taunts up to a certain point, and then she'll cut him off because she's clever enough to know that Henri has certain information that she needs in order to solve the murder, so she's careful not to go too far. Uh, But she is one person who can keep Henri on his toes. 
What would you like people to take away from the Christine de Pizan novels? I would hope that they would want to learn more about the real people in the novels. And on my website, I list all the characters who are actual historical figures and give information about them, as well as some information about actual historical events and places. And I hope that people will want to learn more about Christine de Pizan, especially women who are involved in uh, feminist movements today, because here was an extraordinary woman who, six centuries ago, stood up for the right of all women to be respected. Um, You had me worried there for a while because I thought that Murder in the Cloister was going to be the last book in the series, but uh, you say that you might continue it. Is that right? Yes, I... (laughs) The publisher decided not to publish any more books in the series, and I thought, oh, well, I guess I'll have to let it go, but I can't. I mean, this is my family now, these people, and so my agent is looking around for another publisher, and I have four more books planned, which brings the series up to the end of Christine's life, around 1430, when she's around 65. Uh, so I'm working on book number five right now, and I, I hope my agent is going to find another publisher. Well, I hope so, too, because I really enjoyed the first four. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Tanya. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Tanya Bayard about Murder in the Cloister and its predecessors. Find out more about her at www.tanyabayard.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplezzy.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.